The United States of America, youngest by far of the world's great nations, stands today the envy of the civilized world. Official scorekeeper of American development for 150 years has been the busy but unspectacular United States Census. Created by Article I of the U.S. Constitution, its population figures since 1790 have determined the number of delegates from each state in the House of Representatives. When you think about the census, if you think about it at all, you likely don't think this. The census is the foundation of our democracy. The census is, is very powerful, more powerful than voting, because it is the only thing that the federal government does, and it's the only thing the federal government does in which all of us truly are equal. Or this. In the early censuses, I think through 1840, census takers were required to post the actual census sheets to public areas so that people could come and make corrections. During the forming of our nation, our forefathers wanted to use tax money to pay for the American Revolution. They'd planned to use the census to identify taxpayers. If you look at the way it's worded in the Constitution, it says that the census was going to be used for apportionment and for taxation. That was supposed to be to collect taxes to pay for the American Revolution. And also for this. We're going to count everyone in the country and offer political uh, representation accordingly. And something like uh, 325 federal programs use census data to distribute on the order of $900 billion a year for a decade. Best case scenario, every person in our country would be counted in order to distribute the 435 seats in the House of Representatives. It would also mean that every person living in the U.S. would get their share of the dollars at stake. It was a, kind of an ingenious development to put a census as part of constitutional government. That ingenuity, however, was not available to all people at the time the Constitution was drafted and signed. There was the Three-Fifths Compromise. That was ultimately a way to try to balance the interests of uh, the states that had slaves that didn't want not to get credit for them in terms of representation. There's also this problem. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people are apathetic, and then they get this census, and they have excuses not to do it, and they go, ah, I don't want to, well, I'm not going to count, well, you know, oh, they're just going to get more information about me. I have to accept that people will be skeptical, will be fearful, and we have to deal with that. But we have to explain to them that the damage we would do to our communities of not participating is so much greater than whatever risk we may take by being counted. From Bridger Media, it's 2020 Counts, the limited series on Census 2020, with your hosts, Layla Jerusalem and Allison Bajracharya. I'm Layla. I'm Allison. You know, I recently followed our Bridger Media account, Twitter account, recently followed the U.S. Census Gotta Bureau. Gotta that Twitter plug. <laughs> <laughs> so follow the U.S. Census Bureau. They posted something about, hey, the census is coming up. We're so excited. And I would say that every single comment I read was negative. Hmm. I don't want to talk to you. I don't care about the census. Why do you blah, blah, blah. So I thought that was really interesting because... Before this journey that you and I have embarked on, before this 
series before these interviews, not only did I not think of the census as evil, but I just didn't even like think about it at all. And as I've told you, I'm pretty sure I filled it out for my family 10 years ago. Although I don't even know if I filled it out 10 years ago. I agree, I don't remember filling it out. I'm, it's totally possible I did, but you know, I, I vote every single election. I ran for office, like I, I care immensely about voting and being represented, but I had no idea that the census was such an incredibly powerful tool. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn, and I have to say, so certainly when we came up with this idea six months ago, we had no idea what would be playing out in March 2020. Uh, And here we are in the midst of the COVID virus. The information we're about to share will both provide a sense of community and connection to people, but also a sense of hope because there is so much more to do to restore democracy. And I feel strongly that the census is really perhaps our most powerful tool in doing that. The entire Constitution is a remarkable document of being able to compromise while leaving it open. That's Sharon Tosi-Lacy, chief historian for the U.S. Census Bureau. They set some immutable, here's the foundation of things that will never be violated, you know, that that are principles that we are founded on, but also left it open enough to be able to change and grow a bit as society changed and grew. If you look at the way it's worded in the Constitution, it says that the census was going to be used for apportionment and for taxation. That was supposed to be to collect taxes to pay for the American Revolution, and it ended up not being used for that. But the reason they put that in there was they were worried that people would overestimate the number of their population in order to get more representatives, but underestimate it in order to pay less taxes. So that's why they put that balance in there, figuring it would keep people honest but they ended up not using it to collect money for the revolution. Sharon, what was the precedent for the census at the creation of our country? Censuses are nothing new. We have them almost as long as we have recorded history that anytime you have a government, they want to know who is living under them. With the founding fathers in particular, when you want to have a representative government, especially when you're talking about a republic where there's independent states within and each state would get its representation. Of course, apportionment has changed over the years. It used to be tied to a specific number, one representative for 30,000 people. Back then, there were roughly 4 million people in the United States, as many people as there are today in the city of Los Angeles. So the first census, uh, 1790, through the 1870 census, U.S. Marshals actually acted as the census takers. And as you can imagine, especially in those early years, we had no maps. In the legislation, it would say nine months. I think 1790, I think South Carolina was the last one to get their numbers in. And I think it was about, about two years. Now our population is over 80 times what it was then. We are required by law to release our apportionment numbers by the end of this calendar year. That's Kathleen Stiles. She's also at the U.S. Census Bureau. I am Chief of Decennial Communications and Stakeholder Relations. Back in the day, it was the law that you had to respond to the census. Is that not the case anymore? It's, it's still the law, yes. And our <laughs> envelopes say that uh, response is mandatory, yes. The census is safe, it's easy, and it's important, and we want people to understand that. Not everybody can vote in this country. You have to be a citizen, and you have to be of a certain age. Not everybody pays taxes in this country, as we well know. 
Not everybody is treated equally by the government, except for the census. I'm Arturo Vargas. I'm the CEO of the Naleo Educational Fund. And Naleo is the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials. Doesn't matter if you're white, black, Latino, Asian, Native American, male, female, non-binary, gay, straight, transgender, homeless, a millionaire, one day old or a hundred days old or a hundred years old, you only count as one equally. But it wasn't always this way. In some ways, the census relates to the original sin of, of American democracy. That's Tom Bellin. I'm a professor in the UCLA Department of Biostatistics. Tom's been at UCLA since 1991, and before that, worked at the U.S. Census Bureau as a mathematical statistician. There was the now infamous three-fifths compromise where the language of the Constitution talked about counting the number of whole persons, and then it said, and three-fifths of all other persons, so it didn't actually mention the word slave or slavery, but that was ultimately became a, a, a way to try to balance the interests of uh, the states that had slaves that didn't want not to get credit for them in terms of representation. Native Americans living in the general population were not counted until 1860, and those living on reservations were not included until 1900. A history of exclusion or distrust of the government has resulted in many Americans preferring not to be counted. We would get people who were just angry and they didn't want to do the census. That's Jenna Weeks. I worked on the census 10 years ago. She supervised a team whose job was to answer questions from the general public about the census. There's a lot of, like, sovereign nation people who don't consider themselves members of the United States. They would cite some treaty. It was like a treaty. Maybe it was like Louisiana Purchase. Therefore, Minnesota's not actually a state and not actually in the United States, and I don't have to pay my taxes basically, or do the census, and the government has no business knowing who I am or what I am. A good example, and this is just personal to me, my mom is a person who, from the very beginning, when I told her about the census, told me that she wasn't going to respond. And despite all of my lobbying and convincing and trying to get her to understand how important it was for her to participate, uh, she told me that she didn't have any intention to respond. That's Maria Garcia. She works for Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles. I'm the mayor's census director. I'm responsible for developing the city's census 2020 outreach strategy and implementing it citywide. Even Maria had a hard time convincing her own mother to complete the census. She told me that she, uh, she didn't have any intention to respond. Until, that is, she went to her local city hall and received assistance from a young lady who coincidentally had been trained by my team members. Uh, she came out to one of our Census Goodwill Ambassador trainings. Did your mom say what it was specifically that she said? That young lady engaged my mom in a conversation about the census and what that meant for her city. And that young lady 
convinced my mom to respond to the census. So even though I wasn't able to do it, I was able to plant the seed. And that seed was then harvested by somebody else, but we had the common outcome, which was changing somebody's mind who didn't have that initial intention to respond. And and that's what I hope to achieve is, you know, if we can get people like my mom and others that have been historically undercounted, underserved, not represented, if we can get them to shift their perspective and get them to participate in the census, then I will have done my job and we would have done our job in the city of L.A. In addition to advocacy groups and city and state complete count committees, around 200,000 organizations are working towards this one big outcome, to get you and everyone you know to complete your census form. It starts in January of every census year and ramps up in March. All housing units in America should be getting an invitation from the Census Bureau sometime between March 12 and March 16. That's Kathleen again from the Census Bureau. For households that self-respond, I think overall we're thinking we're going to get roughly 60% of those responses on the internet, 30% via paper, and 10% via the telephone. So um, the operations that we um, use to to reach our hard-to-count populations, it starts before we even start the census. The, The accuracy of our address list is just crucial to the accuracy of the census. We create partnerships from the very, very local level all the way to large national organizations. And the reason we do this is because we think people are more likely to respond if they hear about the importance and safety of the census from from trusted voices. We also have an extensive um, advertising campaign. So once the data is gathered and it's near perfect or perfect in, in your eyes, Kathleen, how do you package this so that it's presented to the world, essentially, for dissecting and for using? We're going to go through our data collection operations, and then we're going to go through a processing operation, and then the big reveal, we will in all likelihood release them the week before Christmas. And that's just a real big day for us. That is when we make public and send to the president the state-by-state totals, um, along with which state gains and loses a congressional seat. And to date, we anticipate greatly here, and it's, it's, it's going to be fun. <laughs> you know, people usually find all of these releases fascinating, and not, not just census nerds, but the American public as well. So we're, we're looking forward to all of them. So that day in December will be like Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, yeah. It's party day. It's party day. (laughs) And so it'll go from now until party day in December. The Census Bureau participates in locating, counting, tallying until it's near perfect. Perfect to the Census Bureau and census nerds means 100% of people living in the United States will be counted. Most of the people we spoke with said that 100% is really the only number they'd be happy with. Um, But do you, you, Kathleen, have a percentage or you think, oh, if we can get to that number, I will feel very good about the work we did this year? So let me just say we're going to get to 100%. It's just we're not going to get 100% through self-response. 
I'm personally pretty confident that we're going to reach our number, but, you know, time will tell. Is there a participation rate that you would be happy with if we could achieve it, aside from 100%? 100%. <laughs> That's Tom again. Uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like, you know, every 1% increase in the male response rate saves the government something like $100 million in reduced cost of the so-called non-response follow-up in the census. Follow-up is important because it helps reduce the historical undercount in certain communities. It feels paramount that we do something to close that undercount gap. And I think there are a lot of community groups very intentionally doing that. But from a systems level, could we be doing more? And if so, what would those things be? Yeah, so when you're thinking from a systems vantage point, one approach would be to try to get outreach so that you get better participation up front. And then there was this more back-end idea of doing statistical adjustments. But I would emphasize that there's, there is something about the census that has a, a sort of implicit equity that each, it's just like the, the one person, one vote kind of concept right. that influenced the redistricting cases in the Supreme Court in the 1960s. And I, I think that if we elevated like the Horton Hears a Who principle, a person's a person no matter how small, and that if we emphasize that in the census, I think that that would be a, a victory for our democracy and for our society. A person is a person no matter how small. And that goes to the heart of why the census matters so much. Coming up, we'll ask why some believe the census is more powerful than voting and why we erode our democracy every time someone is undercounted. I love to vote, but I kind of feel like voting is the kind of thing that only a mother could love. For too long, history lessons have glossed over the truly essential contributions women have made to history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. This podcast from Wonder Media Network aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, scientists, chefs, and more from antiquity to today who have shaped our society. Every weekday, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. And the best part is each episode is only five minutes long. The bite-sized episodes pack painstakingly researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. You may or may not already know these women, but you definitely should. Subscribe to Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts. 2020 Counts is brought to you by Meta Natura. If you've ever taken medication for pain, you know that there can be a range of side effects. Medinatura gives millions relief without the side effects of conventional medicines. When I got seriously injured a few years ago, one over-the-counter muscle pain product gave me instant relief. Tea Relief, made from arnica, plant-based pain relievers in a cream of organic oils and organic shea butter, contains no dyes or perfumes. Medinatura products like Tea Relief, Well Mind, Clear Life, and Reboost can be purchased on Amazon, at Whole Foods, or Sprouts.
Use code 2020COUNTS to receive 20% off your order on metanatura.com. Hi, listeners. Before we get back to the rest of our show, we'd like to remind you to catch all episodes of our four-part series and share them. Completing the census is important. Knowing why we should complete the census is more critical than ever. I've been working on the census for the last almost three years um, because I'm interested in it as a core institution of democracy that is undergoing a digital transformation. That's Colin McClay. I'm a research professor and the executive director of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab. I teach at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. So I noticed, Colin, that you are on a first-name basis with the census. We all call it the census, <laughs> and you just said census. Are we calling it the wrong thing? Uh, hey, man, I'm not the person to ask on that one. Um, when did you start calling it census? I don't know. I, you know, I wasn't <laughs> probably either just right now or in the last couple of years working on this, talking with other experts. It's a good question. I don't know. You, you should talk to someone who really has been around the block uh, with census. That person is Arturo Vargas. You've heard him say that the census is more powerful than voting. The census is the foundation of our democracy. Democracy will survive, but it'll be imperfect, and it'll be unequal if we're not counted. We need to make sure everybody gets counted. This is about equity at the most basic fundamental level. Uh, if, you, if your numbers are wrong, everything else that you base then on those numbers is going to be inaccurate as well. I love to vote, but I kind of feel like voting is the kind of thing that only a mother could love. That's Colin again. Kind of, if you think about it, you're typically choosing between two imperfect candidates, right? One is a little more this, one's a little more that. You have to choose one. You, you pick, you know, you pick your poison. That person may or may not win election. Uh, let's imagine they do win. So they go to serve in whatever that body that they serve in. They serve in your state house or in the, in Congress or whatever. And then they have to engage with that with that whole world, whatever that political world is. They're junior. They might you know be able to affect some change, or they might, as with many groups, you know they might spend sixty five percent of their time dialing for dollars. They may in, actually endeavor to represent your interests. And they may or may not be successful. They may not really endeavor to represent your interests. <laughs> so to me, there's a lot of places where that can go wrong. And that's like, let's take one step back. Let's remember that only something like 60 or 70 percent of the people who live in this country are actually eligible to vote, right? If you're under 18, you can't vote. In some states, if you're a former felon, you can't vote. You know, there's any number of reasons that you don't actually vote. And, you know, to say nothing of like the difficulty in many states uh, for actually voting. So to me, that's a pretty flawed process. Um, and then, you know, then of course, that's leaving aside voter suppression and all the other, you know, kind of dirty tricks that happen in the voting world. So compare that with census, where you fill out a form, the form, the data that goes into the database, it is certified, and then things happen, period, based on that data. There's something so easy and straightforward about the census when you put it in this context. Number one, your state is given its fair amount of, rep of representation in Congress. There's just sort of numbers and then it's divided up fairly according to population. So that's one. Two, if we want to create a voting district for in the redistricting process, you have good data about who lives in a particular community, which is, you know, the census motto is count everyone only once and in the right place. When it all works, it leads to one thing, good 
data. Um, so if you have good data, then, and, and you also have not a, a, gerry, a super politically gerrymandered process, but like in California, where you have an independent redistricting commission, then it has good data to draw the right, you know, draw districts fairly. So again, you have more political power. These are both political ways that you get political power based on the census. Something like uh, 325 federal programs use census data um, to distribute on the order of $900 billion a year for a decade. And that is a wide range of programs um, from Head Start and education and foster and adoption assistance, all kinds of kid things, through to Medicare, through to roads and hospitals and public safety and you name the thing. So if you think about that, that's like, you know, that is a lot of money. Um, that is divided its taxpayer dollars, and so it's your dollars that you pay, you know, to the government being returned to your community um, and as investments, and it's distributed not only to people who are aged more than eighteen or eighteen or over and citizens, but to the entire actual community. And then finally, you have that um, the census data as a core data set for the nation against which other data sets are matched. So in that sense, it's more, it's not as directly um, uh, tied to political power, but I would argue it's much more deeply and impactfully and foundationally related to kind of community health. The reality is that we make cities, but cities also make us. That's economist Paul Ong. I'm the director of the Center for Neighborhood Knowledge here at the University of California, Los Angeles. Paul cares a lot about having accurate data to influence how we build cities and communities. Can you share a specific example in your research or the practical work you do, how you're using census data or how you hope to use the census data from 2020? The census allows us to understand who we are, how we live, where we live. And those are key components in terms of understanding issues that we face in society. And hopefully, not only the problems and inequality in society, but some highlights and some sort of insights that guide us in terms of our policies, our programs, our interventions, the way we fund things. It's looking at the ability of people in different neighborhoods in terms of the mobility to access opportunities, jobs, food, good education, uh, recreation, social life. Paul's articles have included discussing which groups specific to urban planning might be undercounted. If you're a renter, if you don't speak English, if you are overly burdened with other aspects of life, so you don't have the time or opportunity to fill out the, that census form, or you feel alienated from the government society or fearful. So there's all these sort of factors that leads to a lower probability of participating. It has a rippling effect. So the same people who tend to be undercounted for example, are the same people who are relying on public transportation. And so if we undercount that population, we undercount where they live and so forth, it's very hard to come up with reasonable policies in terms of how we invest our dollars, our public transit dollars. If you have bad data, you have bad patterns in terms of understanding it. But we use those models to project forward. We try to look at what's going to happen 10, 25 years from now. And that helps us guide in terms of where do we put major investments. 
infrastructures live for decades, if not centuries. As soon as you put that in place, it's going to be with us for a long time. So people who think about the census think a lot about where and when the undercount might happen. If all areas were undercounted by 1%, that wouldn't affect the distribution. That's Tom again. But what was happening was that whites were being counted more accurately, maybe with either accurately or with an undercount of, say, 1%, and blacks and Hispanics were being undercounted by about 5%, persistently uh, between when they first started measuring undercounts uh, beginning in 1950 with a so-called post-enumeration survey. It's possible to have overcounts. You could have college students who are counted both at college and by their parents who think of them as still living at home. You could have uh, children of divorced families where both parents claim them. And if they moved around the time of the census, they might be, able, uh, they might be counted in both places that they were before the census and when they were after the census. And, and so maybe more mobile parts of the population could be uh, more, you know, more susceptible to being overcounted. So to prevent under and over counts, let's start with the basics. Where you live on April 1st matters. And wherever you were on April 1st is where you should be counted. That's Arturo again. So if you moved into a new apartment on April 2nd, nope, because the census is supposed to reflect the population on that day. And it's when you're not counted that inequity is introduced. We'll explore inequity and how it relates to the census in coming episodes. For now, a reminder of the main reason we complete the census. Paul again. The reason we go and make this count, and as a complete count as possible, because it allows us to construct uh, electoral districts that allows for fair representation and allows for people to elect officials that would represent their point of view. And let's not forget almost a trillion dollars of federal funding that comes to your community to the tune of about $2,000 per person. Money towards providing resources for the elderly and homeless, for your schools, for neighborhood infrastructure. Beyond democracy, beyond representation, beyond funding, the census has come to symbolize for us a very simple purpose, that of being counted. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the deadline to complete your census form has been extended to October 31st. Go to 2020census.gov, that's 2020census.gov, to complete your form. Next time on 2020 Counts. The construction of race in and of itself, right, was to justify and implement inequality. The assignment of being Black with being not a full citizen. So I think if there wasn't that history to it, then we probably wouldn't be seeing the need for any kind of racial categories. Oftentimes it's the same people who are concerned about trusting their government might benefit the most or have the most to lose from being undercounted. I am not going to lie to anybody. It, it would be unreasonable for me to expect somebody not to be skeptical or suspicious or fearful of filling out a government form 
And I have to accept that people will be skeptical, will be fearful, and we have to deal with that. That's next time on 2020 Counts. 2020 Counts is a Bridger Media production. To learn more about our other shows and stay in touch, visit us at bridgermedia.com. That's B-R-I-D-G-R media.com. Sign up on our website and follow us on social media. 2020 Counts is developed and executive produced by Alison Bajracharya and Leila Jerusalem. The series is produced and mixed by Samantha Getzik. Media provided by the U.S. Census Bureau. We'd like to thank the following. Stephen Winston for his branding expertise. Clayton Rosa for designing our website. Eli Green for website photography. Katie Payne for designing our cover art. Becky Carter for graphic design. PJ Shahamat for production help. John Raymond Fisher for lending his voiceover talent. And our families who spent hours wondering if they'd ever see us emerge from our recording caves. 